Well, good morning, Fairhaven Church. Great to see you. Thank you for being here. You've been uh, welcomed and uh, you've been greeted by our campus pastors and hosts. And I want to do the same. If we haven't met, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's great to have you here today. I get the opportunity to open God's Word with you and study it. And I'm really excited about doing that. We are in a series, and the series is entitled Words from the Cross, where we're looking at the, the statements that Jesus made in the span of a number of hours as he hung on the cross. He made some powerful, powerful statements uh, that are important to us, that are important to our relationships that are important to our life, our faith, and so we're studying that because as we approach Easter, we have this service called the Monday Thursday service uh, where we celebrate the cross, and sometimes we just read the statements real quickly, and so we thought, what would it be like if we had a series and we looked at them and really studied them and see what does it mean for us as Jesus makes these statements, so that's exactly uh, what we're doing. I want to welcome our Springboro campus, our Northmont campus, our Beaver Creek campus, our Classics venue, uh, our Center campus, all of you that are here, and those of you that are online, uh, wherever you might be. Thank you for braving the cold. I know it's a sunny day out there, but cold. I came in in the dark, uh, but I understand it's warm or sunny, at least out there. And so for those of you that are not in the Dayton area, it is cold. And uh, so thanks for braving the cold to come out. Thank you for being part of worship. I'm really, really excited that you're here. Hey, if you have a Bible or a device, why don't you turn with me, if you will. We're going to be in the New Testament because we're going to see in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So it's the fourth Gospel. Uh, where we'll read the next statement that Jesus makes from the cross. And this statement that he gives, the, the words from the cross are going to be so personal to you. As a matter of fact, I hope today that you walk away with these two simple but profound realities, these truths in your life and in mine um, as we read them because they are for you. It sounds like they're for somebody else, but they are for you, they are for me. And so it's exciting that we can read. John chapter 19, if you want to turn there, John chapter 19, and we'll start reading that in just a second. I want to start out today by asking you a question. The question is this. Um, do you know that God cares about you? Like if I were to sit down with you, or if, if we just had a, a few minutes where I could just say, you know what, talk to the people next to you, the people that may came with you, or people around you, um, and, and how would you describe that? Do you know that God cares for you? And if you do know that God cares for you, what does that look like? How do you know that? How could you prove it if your neighbor came to you or a coworker and said, um, how do you know that God cares for you? Uh, it's an interesting question, actually, but I think there's another question that really is important, and that's this. How? How do you know? know that? How do you know that God cares for you? Because what we're going to read today in the words from the cross are statements about this very aspect about God caring for you. Um, and it's a very, very amazing statement that he makes. It's so personal, so intimate. But how do you know? Let me suggest at least three ways that you can know uh, that God is caring for you, that God cares about you. Or at least these are three that I've heard many times. You can see them through scripture. Uh, you can add to this list. There's probably many, many more. But um, let's start with this list here. How do you know that God cares for you? Number one, there might be a physical reaction. You might like get goosebumps, right? I mean, like you might be at a place somewhere or you might be sitting down with him reading his word or you might be in a conversation and you just physically, you know that he cares for you in the moment. You can sense it. Um, your senses are alive and physically you sort of feel it. You can feel it in your bones. You can feel it in your head. You can, you know, you know, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, it's just amazing that you get this, you know, physical reaction. Secondly, there might be an overwhelming emotion, 
where there might be tears or there might be laughter or there might be a sense of joy that just kind of comes out of you. And I know, guys, I know if you're here and you're a guy at any one of our campuses or online, I mean, we're not t- you know, typically that outwardly emotional, uh, but men, can we agree that we do have some emotion? Um, and even though sometimes it doesn't come to the surface, there is emotion there and it's good. And so men, we need to celebrate that because one of the ways that you'll know that God cares for you is that you see and feel this emotion on the inside. And uh, that's, that's really good. That's important for us. Thirdly, how do you know that God cares? Because you have this, what I'm calling heavenly peace. We read in scripture uh, a verse that you probably have heard, might even be on a mug in your house. It goes something like this, that you can experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Have you heard that before? In other words, you can experience peace when it makes absolutely no sense. Like you could be going through something and you know in that moment that God cares for you, that God is present, that he's there with you, and you just have this overwhelming sense of peace and it makes zero sense given the situation that you're in or given the conversation that you might be in or whatever that might be. It's heavenly, it's right from God, he's there, and so that's one of the ways uh, that we can know him. And we'll see that today, that as Jesus makes a statement to two individuals, He's really making a statement to you and to me uh, today as we study this. And so as we are in this series, Words from the Cross, um, here is what you'll read as I read it for you in just a second. But I want to just give you the words that are on the cross that Jesus gives. You can just imagine he's there on the cross. He's hanging there. He's suffocating. He's in sheer pain. As we talked about last week, I described the crucifixion. If you weren't here, you can go back and actually follow along. It's just amazing. I mean, just thinking about Jesus on the cross, he's there and he has, he has the sense as he looks out to the people that's there. Um, he looks and he sees two individuals and he says statements, comments to them that really are for you and for me as well. They're not just for them. They're for us today. And, and here's the statements. The statements are woman, behold your son. As Jesus hanging on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mom. And then he says, behold, as he sees John, the disciple John, the the one that Jesus loved, we'll read that today, behold your mother, as he's looking at John. I want to read it for you, it's an amazing scene, and I want you to see the details that John writes as he leads up to recording for you and for me the actual statements that Jesus makes to his mom and to this disciple called John. This is a picture that actually is hanging in the Brooklyn Museum. Um, This is an artist that I love, believe it or not, um, even though I'm an athlete, I love art. Uh, I think art is is moving. I I love to look at it. I love this kind of art, actually, my wife and I do. And this is hanging in the Brooklyn Museum. This is the sorrowful mother. This is a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross and what he sees, uh, or at least, you know, the imagination of the artist of what Jesus sees as he's hanging on the cross. Now, I want you to notice a couple things here, that there's lots of people around. And if you read the story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that there are Jewish leaders there. There certainly are soldiers there. We'll read that today in John chapter 19. 
You've got some ladies that are there. There's four of them right here. Here's one right here. You just hardly can't see her, but that's part of, of her uh, dress right there. You've got the, you know, the apostle, the, the John here, St. John here, um, and you've got all these other people. You've got people from the city, because you'll read today, as I read it for you, that this scene is happening right next to the city. There's all kinds of noise, as you can imagine. I've been to Jerusalem, and if you are in Jerusalem, even right outside the city, it is loud. There's cars. There's people moving around and of course there were no cars then but it was loud there were animals there were people there it was Passover uh, during the Passover and so there was lots of people there I mean it swelled uh, Jerusalem did and so this scene is there and I want you to see this for your because I want this to be the image that you have as I read from John chapter 19 picking it up in verse 16 here's the scene let me read it for you And then let's see if we can understand what John has to say here to us, because this is absolutely amazing. It's what it says, John chapter 19, verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic, or the language of the Jews, some Bibles will use the word Hebrew. Uh, It's not actually Hebrew, that's the Old Testament language, but the word Hebrew sometimes in some of the translations will mean the, the language of the Jews, which is Aramaic. In Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. You may have heard that term. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Anybody know who the other two were? Yeah, of course you do. If you were here last week, two criminals that hung on either side of Jesus, and John wants to make it very clear that Jesus was in the middle, and there's a reason for that, and John will get to that in a second. Pilate also wrote, verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, like a piece of wood or a piece of uh, some kind of paper-like place there. We don't really know, but he wrote it there, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews... Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, as I told you. So lots of people saw it. Lots of people were there. Lots of people were interested. I mean, lots of drama going on. And so there were people there probably just wanting to see what was taking place. And John tells us that here. We talked a little bit about that last week. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, In Latin and in Greek, are those details important? Turns out they are. Verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Let me translate that for you. That would be a no, (laughs) a hard no. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. It tells us that there were four soldiers that were in charge. So they took his clothes and uh, they took it off of him and they divided the clothes. And then it says this, don't miss this. This is an amazing detail that John is setting up for us, the statements that Jesus makes, but he wants to make it very, very clear who we're talking about. Because as we approach Easter, there are people that will come to Easter. Am I right about this? There will be people who will come to Easter who will celebrate Easter because they know something about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. And so John is very, very careful here. And so he says, 
His garments were taken off of him, so his outer clothes, coat, jacket, shirt, pants, all that stuff was taken off, and then they divided it. But then it says this, and also his tunic, see that there? Verse 20, uh, 23, his tunic, but, here's the detail, but the tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. If you're a student of the Bible and you really want to understand and learn some things, you may want to underline that phrase. I'll take a look at that with you in a minute. This is John giving us details that actually matter. They're not just details of like, here's a bunch of things. He's actually describing something that is really, really important because if you understand this, then the statements that Jesus makes are far more powerful, far more powerful. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, nah, let's not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. So they said, let's, let's draw straws and see who gets it. And uh, whoever, you know, whoever wins can have the tunic. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. If your Bible doesn't say it there, you may want to jot this down. It's Psalm chapter 22. You can read it for yourself. The prophecy was in John, or Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse 18, as the prophecy was they're not going to tear his garment, and there's a reason for that, and, uh, and they're going to just cast lots, and uh, uh, John is telling us some really, really important details. Put your finger there, because we're going to come back and read uh, 26, 25, 6, and 7 here, and so this is really important. And so here, what we see here is that Jesus is on the cross, John gives us these details, and the inscription above him is the king of the Jews. And John's not very happy with that because Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. Anybody agree with me on that? However, the Jewish leaders were like, oh man, we've got to, this is not clear. I mean, we've we got to make sure this is clear because we don't want people to be confused um, about the Jewish people. Um, and so they went to Pilate, as we read, and said, can we just write on there that he claimed to be the king of the Jews? And Pilate said, no, 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 we're going to leave it like it is. But then John also gives us another um, piece of information, he says that this inscription, the king of the Jews, was written in Aramaic, it was written in Latin, and it was written in Greek. Why is that important? That means that everybody that walked by could read the words. There wasn't any group that was left out. Everybody could see it. Um, John wants to know that uh, it's really important that if you read the statement, the words from the cross, you need to know who's making the statement, and you need to know that this is for all of us. John is essentially saying it was written in these three languages because we don't want anybody to be confused who's making these statements and what the statements mean. And then he says this, an important detail. He says, and he was on the cross without his tunic or the chiton, seamless and not torn. Now, why would John include that? I mean, he didn't need to go into all the detail of saying they took his clothes off and they, you know, they tore it apart or they divided it and, you know, rolled some dice or whatever. I mean, why is that detail important? It's highly important. Here's why. Because John says that his tunic was seamless. Everybody in Palestine, all the Jews at least, they all wore a tunic. A tunic would be kind of the underwear, if you will, of that day. They wore the tunic, um, and then they would put their clothes on top of it. So it was their undergarment, their underclothing. And so they took that off Jesus. So Jesus is hanging on the cross 
almost naked actually, on the cross with all the other criminals that were there, and the, the tunic was seamless. There were no sewn pieces. Everybody in Palestine wore a tunic, but oftentimes their tunic had at least one or two pieces that were sewn together. Now why is it important that it was seamless? Because only the high priest, according to Exodus chapter 28, was to wear a tunic that was seamless. Only the high priest. And in fact, it was illegal for you to grab the high priest's tunic and to tear it. It was against God's ruling because of the role that the high priest had, according to Exodus chapter 28. And so John's trying to communicate something. Are you seeing it? John is saying, look, I want to tell you what Jesus said on the cross. But you got to know, I mean, everybody read it. But he was not just the king of the Jews. He was the king of kings. He was the high priest. As a matter of fact, if you look in verse 25, 26 there, um, it says in there that it was seamless from top to bottom. You see that there? There's an important detail there that's really, really important for us as we take a look at that. The word top there is the word in the original language, anathen. Anathen means from divine. So catch this. I mean, John wants to make it very clear. This is not the king of the Jews. This is the king of kings who will come for all nations, all people groups, every language, every ethnic group, and he is our high priest. He comes from divine. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that the curtain in the temple when Jesus died was torn from top to bottom. That's the same imagery that John is using there. He wants everybody to know who's going to read this, that this is not some man, this is not just the king of the Jews, not some guy who just thought he was the king of the Jews. This is, this is Jesus Christ, who is in fact the king of kings, who is our high priest, who came to die on a cross, and he makes two statements to two individuals that are good for you and me today. Wow. That's amazing. Seamless and was not torn. As we think about this, John is setting up for us this, the idea that everybody who understands what took place there would know that this garment that Jesus was wearing was not just any underwear. This garment was drawing attention to some divine connection that Jesus is the Christ. He is God, the Son. That's why Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to jot that down, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions. Jesus is our high priest. Which means that if you call me one day and you say, hey, can I come, come to your office and talk with you? I'll say, yeah, I'd love to. And so we'll get together and talk. And if you were to say to me, look, I, I, need, to, I need to confess, I would say to you, you're welcome to confess, but I can't forgive you. Uh, I'm glad that you came. I'm your pastor, hopefully. And so I'm glad you came, but I can't, I can't hear your confessions and actually forgive that uh, for you. You have a great high priest, according to Hebrews chapter 4, according to John chapter 19, on the cross. And he wants to hear your confession. In fact, is he wants to hear my confession confession. He wants to hear all of our confession, and that's exactly what John is leading to. He is our high priest. And then John gives us another bit of uh, details that are really important. He said by standing by the cross, he mentioned some names. Remember the scene, the picture, just all kinds of people. There's Mary, who's Jesus' mother. 
You have Mary's sister, who we know in Mark is Salome. We have Mary, the wife of Clopas, and we have Mary Magdalene. There are four women that are there. Now, you saw the picture that I showed you that's hanging in the Brooklyn Museum. There's all kinds of people there. Why is it that John would make these details about four women at the cross? The more you read about it and the more you see and the more you understand about the first century culture, here's why. Listen up, ladies. Because Jesus celebrated the value, the significance, and the purpose of women. See, in the first century, women were not equal to men. As a matter of fact, let me read some facts for you. In the Jewish world in the first century, Jewish men would often get up in the morning and pray a prayer that went something like this. God, I thank you today that I am not a Gentile, nor a slave, or a woman. They would actually pray that prayer. I mean, that's how, that's how different that Jesus sees women compared to those in the first century. And so John says, I want you to know this. This is really important that God has created male and female. Listen carefully. He's created us equal with different roles. Am I right, church? Very different roles, but equal. It gets worse, actually, in the Greek society in the first century. In the Greek society, women's situation was even worse. They were concubines or if you were a wife, your role was simply to bear children and to keep the house clean. According to the Greek society, the Roman culture was worse still. And I don't even want to go into the description because it's just so bad. The Romans didn't even in any way value or celebrate women, and yet Jesus did. And that's why in the next chapter, you don't need to turn there, but in John chapter 20, guess who was at the empty tomb and gives us the first um, understanding of the fact that the tomb is empty. Guess who's there? Women. Which is amazing because in the first century, a woman could not go to court. She was not allowed to give testimony in any way because her testimony was not valid. It wasn't worth listening to. And so and yet Jesus, uh, John, is telling us that four women were there um, of course, his mom and his mom's sister and you know, Mary of Clopas and then Mary Magdalene, they were all there because Jesus wants to elevate the fact that it's so important that we as a church, all of us together understand that God has created us equally, but he gives us different roles and he wants us to operate like a family because we'll get to that in just a little bit based on his statements. And then we see that not only was there women there, then it says in there, you read it? It says in there that Jesus saw the disciple that Jesus loved. Anybody know who the disciple that Jesus loved was? Yeah, it's right here, John. You know who wrote these words? John. It's pretty amazing that John would say that he is the disciple that Jesus loved. That's pretty amazing that he would write that about himself. It's kind of funny, actually, if you think about it. I would argue that this might be the first century selfie. <laughs> that John is saying there were four women there, and I was there. <laughs> and then he tells us the statements that Jesus made. Hear the statements again, and let's see if we can understand them. Woman, as he looks to his mom, behold your son, John, Behold your mother. Let's take a look. I read part of it for you. Let's take a look. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother 
And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mom, his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus is communicating two realities here as John has been setting this up and saying he's not just the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. He's the king of all nations, all languages. He is the high priest. And he makes these two statements that are two realities, not just for his mom and not just for John. They're for you and for me today. Are you interested in knowing what these realities are? These are two truths, simple as they may be. They're so profound. It could change the way you see your week as you just rehearse these statements over and over again. Here's the first reality. The first reality is this. Jesus is communicating, I care about you. Jesus is there on the cross, and John has told us he's the son of God. And he looks to his mom, and he's not just telling his mom that he cares about her. He wants to, through his mom, to tell the entire world, I care about you. Woman, which by the way, in the first century was not a title of disrespect. Woman, behold your son. Mom, I'm hanging here on the cross because I want to care for you. I care so much that I'm going to die for you, mom, and I'm going to die for everybody else in order that we might be able to have freedom from all the wrong in our life, that the relationship that was broken between us and God, which was your fault, my fault, can be repaired and brought back together again. And the reality of that is that Jesus is communicating on the cross when he looks to his mom, I care about you. And he wants to say that to all of us today. I care about you. I care about you and you. I care about you. Don't leave here today without the power of the fact that Jesus says, I care about you, you, you. Wow. I guess you could say on the one hand, um, if Jesus cared about his disciples, certainly he cares about his mom. I mean, that would be a logical statement, wouldn't it? But you see, Jesus flips it around. If you look at the scripture and you look at the gospels, you, you realize that Jesus cared about his mom all the more reason that he cared about his disciples. In other words, Jesus was speaking to his mom and he loved his mom, but he knew that his mom was his earthly family, but that there's going to be a family beyond the earthly family. There's going to be a spiritual family, the church. So he says to his mom, behold your son, I'm going to die today because I care about you. The problem is that there's times in our life, if we're honest, where it doesn't feel, we don't experience the fact that Jesus cares about you. As a matter of fact, let me ask this question. Um, If Jesus cares, then why doesn't he do something? You probably have never said that out loud, but you may have thought that in your head. You may have thought that in your heart, thinking, man, alive, if Jesus really cares, you may even be thinking that now, if Jesus really cares about me, I mean, then why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he fix this? Why doesn't he change this? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he do something? 
And when you look through scripture from cover to cover, you'll discover that this question will fall into one of three different categories. It doesn't matter what your situation is, it will fall into one of three different categories that answer this. And I think it'd be really important for us to answer this because if we're gonna go so far as to say that John was working really, really hard to make sure that he wasn't just the king of the Jews, he was the king of kings, and he's for all nations, all languages, and he's our high priest, and Jesus says, behold to his mom, your son, I care about you, meaning I care about all of you, I care about all of you, then we better answer this question because there are times, if we're honest, that we ask this. If he really cares, why doesn't he do something? Here are the three answers, the three categories that you may want to take a look at because chances are, if this question comes up in your mind, it falls into one of these three categories. Here's category number one, because the problem may be ours. In other words, we may have a hard heart. I know what you know, and that is that when we have a hard heart, it is hard to experience the fact that Jesus cares about us because our hearts are cold, they're closed off, they're shriveled a little bit. We don't really care about a lot of things, and because we don't care about a lot of things, we're not sure that anybody cares, for that matter, God care about us. We don't think that happens. The question then is, how do we get a hard heart? Well, if you look through scripture, you'll find again that there's typically three things that cause us a hard heart in our lives. Let me give them to you, because I want to think through these in my life. Number one is when you experience hurt in your life, that is a potential for you to have a hard heart. Somebody hurt you, something happened to hurt you, somebody said something, a neighbor, coworker, family member, friend, spouse, single friend, whatever it might be, hurt can cause a hard heart in our lives. Anybody want to agree with that? Here's the second one, disappointment. When something happens in your life and there's a disappointment, life was going great in a certain direction and all of a sudden it took a right turn and you didn't expect this, you didn't want this, you didn't, you didn't ask for this and all of a sudden you're dealing with all kinds of disappointment, huge disappointment and that can cause a hard heart. Here's the third one and the one that really is probably the biggest one and that's sin that happens on a regular basis. Now listen carefully. I don't mean that you make a mistake regularly because that's all of us. I'm saying when you do the same thing over and over and over again, if you're repeating a particular wrong in your life, if you're doing something to consistently disappoint God, if a particular sin in your life has become a friend, you're probably gonna have a hard heart. And so when we ask this question, um, if Jesus cares, then why doesn't he do something? Because the problem may be ours. The problem may be that we have a hard heart and we need to deal with that in our lives. We need to deal with hurt. We need to deal with disappointment. And certainly we need to deal with something that's become a friend of ours that's just consistently disappointing God. Would you agree, church? And that's why it's so important for you to be here today because we're here and we together as a church family want to get to the place where you could come for prayer after one of the services. You could talk to another person. You could ask us, one of the staff, because we want to we make sure that these conversations are had. It's just that important because Jesus wants you to know, I care about you. That's the first category. Here's the second category. Just because our circumstances don't change doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care. Anybody agree with that? 
You see, if John takes so much time to set up the fact that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, he's actually the king of the kings, who, king of kings, who is for all nations, all languages, and our high priest, it's important for us to understand that if that's true, then it's possible that God has a plan that we know nothing about. God has a future that we know nothing about. As a matter of fact, when John uses the term that he's tunic was taken off seamless from top to bottom, it's the same language that when we talk about Jesus knowing the beginning from the end. He knows all things. Could it be that the situation or circumstance that you find yourself in, because nothing much has been changing, could it be that God has some reason, some good, Romans chapter 8, that can come out of it that you and I can't see in the moment? We might not even see in the next five you know, months, five years, who knows? And yet, our hope is found in Jesus Christ because he cares for us, and we know that even if our situations don't change. How many of you would like to leave here today with a creed that goes something like this? I will trust God if my circumstances never change because I know he knows the end. I know he knows the story. I know he knows how he's going to work through this. He is sovereign. He's all-knowing, and he cares about me. That's a creed we could leave with. Anybody want to leave with that today? By raised hand and all of our campuses online, you can just put a thumbs up if you want. I know that's my creed. I want to leave here today with that. So the second category would be the fact that sometimes he doesn't change our circumstances because he's got something else working and we don't know anything about it. Third category is because God wants to draw us closer. Sometimes God uses situations in order to draw us closer. That's why in Jeremiah chapter 29 we read, that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Jeremiah 29 says, if you seek him, you will find him. That oftentimes God wants to use situations in our lives because he cares for us so much that he wants to use them to draw us closer to him. And that might be what he's doing in your life. See, look at your situation, look at your circumstance, look at your family's circumstance, and it probably falls into one of those three categories. Jesus makes this incredible statement. I care about you. Here's a statement that I don't really like, but I think it's true. See, suffering produces the best in us. And comfort often produces the worst in us. Is that right, church? And I don't like it. And I'm sure you don't either. But the truth is, when I look back on my life and the situations that were uncomfortable and difficult, it produced the best in me. And oftentimes when things are comfortable, things are great, we don't need God, we're just, you know, we're along for the ride and everything's fine and um, it produces or often produces the worst in us. And so Jesus, this statement that he makes to his mom, he makes to you. And the statement is, I care about you. And then he looks at the disciple, John, and he says, behold, your mother. What's Jesus saying there? Here's the second reality. The second reality is Jesus saying, care for each other. Care for each other. Think of it this way. Your nucleus family will be with you on earth, but you have a spiritual family that will last forever. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus here today and any one of our campuses are online, we're family. 
And like it or not, we're gonna spend a long time together. So you might as well get used to the person next to you or the person behind you and get to know them because you're gonna spend a long time together with each other. It's awesome. Now you will, I believe you'll know your family and, and so forth, but you know, the Bible's very clear. There's not marriage in heaven. And so I think Jesus is pointing to something beyond just the family unit. He's pointing on to the fact that we as the church, um, we as his followers, we need to care for one another. We need to walk with each other. We need to pray with each other. And we need to um, you know, serve a meal. We need to do whatever we can. We need to, we need to care for one another. Some would say, well, no, he's just talking to John. It's really not that important. Oh, yeah, it is. And why do we need to care for each other? I mean, I guess we could ask the question, why? And here's the answer. Why do you need to care for each other? Here's why. Number one is because this is how the world will know who Jesus is. That when we care for each other, even though we're not related, perhaps, you know, as family, but we're spiritual family, um, that we care for each other. That's how the world will know. That's what Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room. This is how the world will know you, by your love. Secondly, the reason why we need to care for each other is because that's God's plan. It's a tangible plan. God can use you tangibly in somebody else's life. As a matter of fact, that works both ways. That when you're going through something, God can use people around you to tangibly care for you. Jesus is saying, I care about you, and I want you to care about each other. We know that John took Jesus' mom home. It says it right here in John. As a matter of fact, we know that John actually took care of Jesus' mom for probably at least 11 years. Because if you read the book of Acts, you see John involved till about Acts chapter 8, somewhere around there. And then he falls off the page of Scripture. Like, where'd John go? I mean, I thought John was the, the one that Jesus loved. And you can't find him until the very end of his life. He shows up and he writes, you know, John. And then he writes, you know, Revelation um, at the very end of his life. Scholars would say that that's true because he took care of Jesus' mom. But it goes beyond that to you and I, that we should care for one another. So secondly, it's God's plan. Thirdly, here's why. Because we rejoice better when somebody cares for us and we grieve healthier. Scripture is pretty clear that when there are people around us that rejoice, here's what we need to do as a church or a spiritual family. We need to rejoice with them. And if somebody grieves, here's what we need to do. We need to grieve with them. And when we grieve together, it, we grieve in a more healthy way. Because I think you know that if you grieve alone, your life becomes very small and isolated. And you end up just by yourself Nowhere. Jesus makes these statements. And so I want to end with two questions today. Do you know that God cares about you today? Don't leave here without repeating to yourself over and over again, all week long, Jesus cares for me. Jesus cares for me. Second question that I'm going to leave you with is this. Who does God want you to care for? He might be asking you to care for somebody. You know it. It's time now to respond. Who does God want you to care for? And if you're caring for someone, can I tell you, you bring great pleasure to God. That's awesome. You bring great pleasure to God as you're caring for someone in your life. Would you bow with me for a second as you contemplate these two questions? Do you know that Jesus cares? And who do you need to care for today? Father, we thank you that we read these simple statements. 
And yet they're so profound when we think about what John was trying to communicate to all of us. Father, I thank you that we have the opportunity here together in all of our campuses and those online, Lord, to, to realize maybe again, maybe in a new way, how you love us and you care for us. Father, I pray that you'd be with every person here today, that they would leave and this week would know without a shadow of a doubt, God, that you are watching over us, that you see us, you know us, and you care about us. Help us, Father, to care for each other, we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said,